You only get into out the game what you put into it, Shelley. Mm -hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much. Yeah. Somebody said the football is a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Hello and welcome to Man Marking, the podcast that discusses mental health within football. Welcome to episode four. Let's see who we've got on the show this week. Yeah, so um, obviously I'm Scott Davis, 32 years old now. Um, I was fortunate enough to be a professional footballer um, to the age of 26, 27. Um, had some good times, had some bad times. Um, along the way, I had some difficulties and um, I've come out the other side of those now, which obviously we'll get on to. Um, but for me, uh, I'm obviously grateful for the times that I did have. Um, but now I go around helping others with uh, issues that they have around gambling because it played a big part in my life for 10 and a half years. I didn't realise how bad it could get, um, but it took me to a low place uh, in 2015, which I needed to combat um, and I've managed to do it. And now my passion is um, helping others, especially footballers. Um, my main job is that I go around every professional football club in the championship league one and league two tell my story and help other people out along the way so um yes yeah, it's, it's been tricky it's been bumpy um but i've got a story to tell i suppose and uh off the back of that it's given me a great job where exactly are you uh, are you from scott so i grew up in um, a town called ellsbury in buckinghamshire um and then i met my uh, fiance we're getting married next year met her on bumble which is a dating app <laughs> and uh moved in with her last year so um yeah, it's, I'm living in Denham now, which is still in Buckinghamshire, but a bit closer to Heathrow. Could you tell us why you agreed to do it, to do an interview for Man Marking? Yeah, so for me, do you know what? I've got a real passion to help others, um, whether it's in football, out of football, with gambling, university projects, uh, podcasts, things like that. It's all of um, an interest to me. So um, anything that I get um, given the opportunity to speak about, um, I'll always try and do it because I believe that the message that I do have um, that we've tried to spread as far and wide as we can in the game um, and in society um, will benefit others. Um, and I think it's so important as men and girls as well um, that we speak out about our issues and don't keep anything um, uncovered, I suppose. I think it's so important to offload how you're feeling. Um, don't feel ashamed about the way you're feeling, whether it's positive or negative. Um, and don't feel like you're going to get judged for it because... At the end of the day, we're all human. We all make mistakes. Um, we've all got issues, but hiding them is the worst thing you can do. Joining me to discuss Scott's interview this week, she was briefly out the side for the last episode, but the managers brought her back into the fray today. Katie Taylor-Smith, how are we doing? Hi, I'm really good. Thank you for having me back. Fantastic. How was the year? How was the recovery from the headache? Oh, it's just an ongoing drama with this whole downtime. It's just like you get all these strange symptoms of physical illness and then you're fine the next day. It's I think it's more like psychosomatic. It's, it's <laughs> definitely a weird situation. <laughs> I don't blame you. Joining Katie is uh, a man who recently witnessed the inaugural 100 meter Vicky Park race. He was the commentator. It was Anthony Olsen. Anthony Olsen, how are we? Aye, mate, you're right. Yeah, not bad, mate. Thoughts on the race, on the big race? Um, I was a little bit shocked by your attire um, to come out in a in your in your girlfriend's t-shirt, and then 
the the overall race though, yeah, you were you were brilliant, Dan. You know, you put the rumours to bed whether you could do it or not. So it was great to see. Fantastic, mate. Fantastic. And obviously on the back of that race, I've I've put the challenge out to the rest of the group, particularly to Ryan. He feels like the man to beat, but I feel like I've got it in my locker. Ryan, how are we doing? Yeah, good, mate. You? Yeah, good. Thanks, mate. Good thoughts on the challenge. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm happy. Any place, anywhere. Let, let's get it on. Well, you know where the place is, the Vicky Park, the Vicky Park 100 meter challenge. Oh, I see your home pitch. You just walk up your house and straight over to those fields. I see. Well, this is it, mate. One when you're the defending champion, the unified title holder. You know, people have got to come to you. You know, I don't make the rules. I saw that more as an elimination match, mate, to get to the people's champ. So um, I'd suggest Birkenhead Park. But anyway, we can discuss that another time. So obviously Scott Davis, a former Red and midfielder. Ryan, do you want to tell us how this this interview came about? Yeah, I, th I think it initially came about because we, we saw what he was doing on Twitter through his epic risk management. Um, he was a player that we were obviously aware of in his in his younger days and it just seemed to be like one of those players that seemed to fall off the face of the earth and you think, yeah, I remember him, he, what happened to him? And then obviously we learnt about his story and he, and he was very open to speaking with us. So it, it was nice really because I sort of half knew he, he, he had some of the issues with the gambling, but when he when he broke it down and told his full sto story, it was brilliant, really. So every episode, we, we have a theme. Katie, do you want to talk the listeners through what this week's theme is? Yeah, so this week's theme is addiction, football, finances, and the importance of family. Um, we discuss how footballers are earning huge sums of money and how addiction can play a detrimental role um, and the importance of having good social and family relationships to support you going through such, um, you know, hard times such as addiction and what it leads to. Yeah, absolutely. And and Ant, I think we've seen potentially in the last few years this has been increased, but sport and gambling, the relationship between the two can often be very interlinked and one relies on the other. Yeah, um, it's a big industry, isn't it? Uh, the gambling industry anyway. And I think... When you think of football uh, back in the 90s and 80s, it wasn't as uh, prominent. You know, they weren't the, the shared sponsors uh, to the large extent that they are today. But recently, there has been this move towards those companies. I think it, just naturally, because they're the ones who are going to be able to offer the, the clubs the most money. I think the majority of Premier League football teams now are sponsored by gambling companies. Whether that's good or not, I'm not really sure. Um, I think with education around gambling, that could be perfectly fine. But obviously, there are the really negative side effects to, to gambling and the, and the horror stories that we hear. Football itself, you know, the English Football League is is sponsored by Skybet. And obviously, that's a subsidiary of, of Sky TV. But when we look at football these days, we're, we're getting to a place where it is, it's one and the same. Essentially, you know, football and gambling goes, goes together, much like horse racing and gambling goes together. Um, you know, there's never really a, a horse race where you don't find out where the odds are. Uh, well, what the odds of a horse was who won. So it's an interesting topic. It's a very um, tough topic to talk about for many people. And it, it's a kind of a, a difficult one to understand and a difficult one to, to fall down on either side. So I think you've heard enough from us. This is Scott Davis's interview and we'll see you on the other side. You began at Wickham and then believe you moved to Redden at quite a young age. Could you just talk us through what that was like at the time? Yeah, so it was stressful. Um, I was sort of 14 years old. I was playing for Wickham Wanderers. I uh, was playing in the under-16s, um, so a couple of years above myself. Um, they had quite high hopes for me um, from the age of 14. And 
my dad rang me one day when I was walking home from school and said, Reading Football Club have been on the phone. They want to take you over on trial. And for the first time in my life, I felt uncomfortable. Um, I thought to myself, do you know what? Moving to a, um, a new area, um, new people, new background, high level football. Um, what's it going to be like? How's it going to feel? And after the first training session, I felt completely um, inadequate. I thought to myself, do you know what? They're so much better than me. They're bigger than me, stronger than me, quicker than me. Um, and I said to my dad, listen, I don't want to go back. And he basically said to me, listen, this is once an opportunity lifetime um, to go and join a club like Reading. Um, they were obviously brand new stadium at the time. They were doing well. And I got dragged back there, um, kicking and screaming. Um, fast forward a few months, got, got bought for, I do believe, a fee um, of around £50,000. And I remember going into school the next day thinking, do you know what, this is easy. Um, I'm going to go and make a life in football. I'm going to be a millionaire, have a nice house, nice car, nice missus. But being at 14 years old was difficult, um, which led me to move out of my house at 16 to go and live with a, a family in Reading um, that had to make sure that I was in bed by 10 o'clock every night, make sure that I had dinner uh, in the evening. And to be honest, I, I won't be ashamed to admit it now. I miss my parents. I miss my friends. Um, I miss being at home. And it was tough. Um, homesickness kicked in. Um, but I knew that through these sort of dark, tough days um, to be able to get to where I wanted in the in the world of football. I can imagine that. I mean, that's an awful lot of pressure for somebody from the ages of 14 to 16, isn't it? And had you always thought I'm going to become a footballer or had you had a backup plan back then? And was you interested in anything else or was it just footballer or nothing at that stage? Um, I believe deep down that I, I had a chance. Um, I knew that I was half decent, um, but there's having a chance and actually doing it is two separate things. And I knew it was um, a dream rather than a reality. Um, people around me used to tell me that I was good enough uh, to make it as a professional. And I knew that I'd made the sacrifices, I suppose, at 14 to sort of 17 to get my professional contract. Um, and then things started to change with the success and the money that came with it. Um, I probably changed as a person. Um, and my attitude changed, my ego grew, and off the back of that, I, I went through some dark days because of um, what that did to me, I guess. Um, but yeah, my dream from a young age was always to be a footballer. Backup plans, I went to a really good uh, grammar school where I lived. Uh, my parents were like, listen, you need to focus on your education as well as football, but you try telling that to a lad that's just been bought for 50 grand at 14, it's hard. Yeah. Um, you could be the nicest lad in the world, the most down-to-earth lad of the world. Um, but when you've been bought for that amount, um, it does go to your head. Uh, even if you don't tell people that it's gone to your head, um, you feel it within yourself. Um, and yeah, that was quite difficult because uh, having a price tag on your head like some of these multi-million pound players now, you can understand the strains and stresses and pressures that they go through um, yeah. because I felt it for a small amount at 14 years old. And do you think, and this isn't just aimed at Reading because it happens every week with big, bigger clubs taking other lads from academies but do you think the clubs do enough for those young lads at that stage they do now um we yeah. work quite quite closely with chelsea um i go in there sort of six times a year to speak to their youngsters around the issues of gambling speaking out speaking up um and basically getting them to talk and they've got a guy there called jack francis who's like head of education and welfare and if I had him when I was younger, we're actually the same age, but if he um, was in the job that he's in now when I was 14, you'd feel so much more at home. Um, they get looked after, they get catered for. Um, they're always checking on their well-being and their mental health. And I think that's so important because every time you walk past someone in a football training ground and they say, oh, how are you, mate? You go, yeah, I'm fine. You, you, how are you? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm good. Um, no one ever turns around and says, do you know what, mate? I'm actually struggling. Um, yeah. 
I'm having a row with the missus every night. The kids are driving me mad. I'm having financial difficulties. Um, yeah, it's just the immediate reaction. It's the, it's the obvious answer. Um, and that needs to change. But how it will change, when it will change, I'm not too sure. Um, but I've seen it from the work that I do this year. A lot of people feel though, feel as though they can open up to me. Um, and you know what? The sort of, um, I suppose, the overwhelming feeling that I get is a sense of um, satisfaction, I suppose, uh, because I know that I can help these people. Can you remember a sort of a defining moment in that in them early days that that got you into the gambling um, and, yeah. and one of the things that started the problems? Yeah. So listen, there's only so much time you can sit in your digs, um, obviously playing uh, computer games, uh, flicking over TV channels, and you get bored and you think to yourself, do you know what am I going to do um, for the next seven or eight hours before I go to bed? So I used to walk to McDonald's of all places to go and get a McFlurry in the evening. And on the way back, I started to find my way into Coral Bookmakers, um, 16 years old, two years younger than the, the national legal limit. Uh, and they would say to me, listen, have you got ID? And I'd just fob it off and say, I've given it to the lady last week and they'd let me carry on. So I started yeah. doing it purely out of boredom. Um, but as a footballer at the time, I was massively competitive, as you can imagine. So every time I placed the bet, my heart was going like the clappers. Um, and I thought to myself, Jesus Christ, this is unbelievable, this feeling that I'm getting. Um, and I wanted more of it. So I was only earning £50 a week, um, losing my £50 a week, ringing my mum up as soon as I got out of the shop, saying to her, I bought a pair of trainers or a tracksuit, can you help me out? She would transfer me some over um, and I'd go and lose hers. And then sometimes the following morning, I'd wake up and think, what have I done? Um, I can't afford mm. to get the bus to training. So I used to just skip training, um, make up excuses, turn my phone off when the physio used to call me. Um, and then I'd get punished for it the next day. Sometimes I'd leave the training at half four in the morning and walk three hours to get there um, just to make sure I got there because I didn't have £1.20 for the bus. So, yeah, it was some dark days um, walking in the in the pissing rain, I suppose, going to training at, at quarter to five in the morning. Wow, yeah. And what, and what type of things was it you were gambling on? Was it like the roulette machines and those type of things? Yeah, so it gave me like instant response from doing the roulette. Obviously, you've got to wait 12 seconds or something for an outcome. Yeah. Um, horse racing dog racing was the same football matches um used to last too long for me i wanted sort of um instant reaction stuff so um waiting 90 minutes for a football match at the beginning when i was earning 50 pound um i didn't bother too much um but yeah the the screens um in the bookmakers obviously the fixed odds betting terminals they got me straight away um was completely hooked um, and then with the success that came with football, I had the money to do it and the time to do it. Um, I felt like I had the knowledge to beat the system when I used to bet on sport. Um, and the fact that I was competitive, every time I lost the bet, I thought, you know what, I'm going to make sure I win the next one. Um, and that's a danger in itself. So when you get that first sort of decent money contract, instead of spending the same amount of betting and having more on your, in your pocket, you were just then spending more on the betting? Yeah, my disposable income limit each month was, um, at, after a couple of years of being a youth team, was quite good once I'm a professional contract. But um, I started betting more than I could afford, and that's when it becomes an issue. I knew I had an issue, um, but at the time, I knew I was getting paid again in the next few weeks, a large sum of money, I suppose, uh, for a young lad. And I didn't feel like I needed to stop um, because, uh, obviously, the money I was earning, it would always get me through. Um, but... If I'd have stopped sooner, it would probably change my life um, completely, how it's shaped now, um, how my career went, possibly would have been different. Um, but it's one of those things I'll never know. Um, I can't really sort of um, live on that too much because I need to start moving forward again. Yeah, of course. And and in that period, you actually had quite a lot of uh, short-term low moves and, and bounced a few, a 
few between a few different clubs. What 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 was that like at the time? Yeah, so the the kind of guy I was, I wasn't the best drinker in the world. Um, I went on a night out when I was sort of 17, 18, um, and I got punched in the jaw and it broke my jaw. So I went into training on the Monday morning. Um, Steve Coppel was the manager, um, good old Scouse guy. And uh, <laughs> he basically sat me down and he said, listen, Scott, um, I've not been happy with the way that you've been acting. He said, I've had to discipline you for shooting players with BB guns in the training ground, something you just don't do. Um, he said, now you're sat in my office with a broken jaw. Um, he said, what's going to happen is that you're going to go um, out on loan for the whole of next season because uh, I don't want to see you at the training ground. So I had no choice in where I went and I went to Aldershot Town um, and I remember signing for them and I felt like a kid uh, in amongst men because I was still young. And when I got on the team bus for the first time, I thought, how do I fit in here? How do I sort of mix? Who do I sort of sit with? Where do I sit? And the captain called me up uh, from down the back of the bus and said, listen, do you want to play poker? And I was like, yeah, of course I do. Um, didn't have a clue what the rules of the game were. But fast forward a few hours, I'd lost £2,000 on my first trip. Um, and that was two thousand. That was two thousand pounds on um, like an IOU sheet. So it wasn't in cash because uh, I didn't have yeah. cash on me. I was only on four hundred quid a week. So I went home. I said to my parents that I'd made a mistake um, that I gambled and I'd lost two thousand pound. Asked them to help me out. Uh, they wouldn't help me out. But I knew how my mum functioned. So I went upstairs and I went on a payday loan uh, website, printed off the sheets, and I left a um, piece of paper on the downstairs uh, dining table. It was a six thousand eight hundred pound loan to pay back two grand. The following day, my mum approached me. She said, listen, like, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to get a loan out. The day after that, she gave me £2,000 in an envelope and said, don't gamble again. But I didn't realise I'd go on, and go on to lose um, almost a quarter of a million pound more. So I knew that in the early days I needed to stop. My mum tried to help me stop. Um, but yeah, moving to a new club, uh, sort of like 19 years old, uh, was, was very, very difficult um, because I felt like I needed to fit in. And that's what I turned to was gambling. And looking back now on that experience, if you if you approached that player, assuming it was a senior player, was it? And you said, listen, I'm, I'm in trouble here, I can't pay that. What do you think the reaction to that would have been? Do you think it was loan or nothing? Or do you think they would have been understanding? Yeah, the, the player that I actually owed the money to was 37 years old. So for me, it was, listen, I look up to you, you're a senior player, you've had a great career. Um, I owe him that money and it was a proper debt. It wasn't just yeah. a, a fob it off, like, don't worry about it. Um, we played cards seriously. Uh, we played it for hours and people used to get quite irate if they weren't winning and, or if they had some bad beats in poker. So I knew I needed to pay it. Um, I didn't ever think about not paying it. Um, and for my own pride as well, I think I had to pretend I could pay it because as a young lad, that ego tells you that you have to obviously put on a front to everyone else that you have got the cash in your account. Um, yeah. But I didn't. I didn't have anywhere near that money. Um, so, yeah, no, I didn't even think about not paying I remember that older shot team uh, that you were part of, and it was actually a highly successful time for you in your career, wasn't it? That older shot, yeah, yeah. So we won the league that year, um, but there was so much stuff that I went through that season as a young lad that I just didn't speak out about. And the first time that I cried in years was actually in my manager's office. So I was sat at my girlfriend's house one day, and I got a phone call um, from my best mate, and he said, "Listen, my mum's gone missing." So he said, uh, can you come and help me find her? Can you come and help me search? And I was like, yeah, of course. And she was suffering with mental health issues. Um, and she was like a second mum to me. And my mum was like a second mum to him. So it was a real uh, tight-knit group. So I went around his house and we we saw some um, some things in the kitchen that we we did we wish we hadn't seen. Uh, but we knew we were in trouble. We had to go down the hospital immediately. Um, we went down the hospital that night. We went to look for his mum. We couldn't find her. And 25 in the morning, the police were still looking. Um, they came around to my parents, knocked on the door and said, listen, 
um, sorry to inform you, we found the body of your mum and it's not good news. And this was um, one of the well, one of the hardest things I've ever been in my life, one of the most upsetting. Um, I went to training the next day and I didn't speak to anyone about what had happened. Um, I didn't speak to my manager. Um, but he pulled me in a few days later and said, listen, Scott, he said, I've seen an a change in attitude in your behaviour. You've been quite quiet. Um, and he said, what's going on? And for the first time in years, I broke down. I started crying and I told him what had happened um, a few days earlier. And he couldn't believe it. And he said, listen, go and have a few days off. Um, go and recover, like get your mind sorted. Um, but that, that's just one of the things that you hide in football because you don't feel like you can go in and tell people what's happened. You don't feel like you can tell people the truth. All of these things that as a young footballer, you don't get prepared for. Or you don't know how to act, but then you go out there on a Saturday and try to do the right thing. Um, and that's really, really tough. And I suppose as well, the environment you were in for what you was essentially your day job being a footballer, it's such a, a masculine environment and it's so much banter goes around and you're in the changing rooms and it probably didn't feel to you like the place to open up to anybody as well. But it showed you when you spoke to them. Was it Gary Waddock at the time? The yeah. Yeah, he's a, yeah. Yeah, he's an incredible guy. Um, got a lot of respect for him. Um, really get on with him. It's quite ironic that my last ever professional club, he was manager and he released me. Um, and after that, I didn't get another club. Yeah, but he signed me four, four times previously uh, before that. But it just shows what happened to my career and how I'd kind of changed as a player. Um, I wasn't the player that I once was. Um, and for him to sign me four times and then be the guy to release me out of professional football, um, I kind of, it kind of spoke volumes um, because I knew that I needed to sort of um, I needed to sort of buck up my ideas um, about which direction my life was heading because I was a complete mess um, at Oxford United at the time when he released me. So after you went back after your loan spells um, to Reading, was there op opportunities to, to join clubs permanently before that? Were all the shock keen to take, make that permanent, or did you yeah. fancy chances of making it at Reading still at that stage? Yeah, so there was sniffs. Um, there was a bit of an interest, apparently, about uh, going to Everton. Um, there were sniffs about going to Bristol City on a longer-term contract or more money. Um, but none of, none of these things materialised. Um, you hear a lot of uh, whispers within football, um, and I didn't know really what to believe. But um, I was I had my heart set on playing for Reading. I'd been there for, at the time for, uh, I don't know, six years or so, uh, by the end of the two seasons that I'd spent all the shot. Um, and I felt like that was home, even though... Um, I hadn't trained at the club for two years. When I got back there for the following pre-season, I thought, you know what, I've done the hard work now. I've got 25 goals in my first two professional seasons. And I thought I'd kick on from now, which I did at the start of the season um, when Brendan Rodgers, man uh, Brendan Rodgers came in as manager. But um, that was quite a bit of a turbulent time with him also. Um, yeah, it was, it was difficult. I started the season really well until I got caught sort of lying, being unprofessional um, about my whereabouts with gambling. Um, and then I never played another match. Reading was never in another match day squad, so it was it was tough. So did they find out what the issue was, or did, was it more the line for that from their point of view? So what it was was um, we started off like sort of pre-season in Sweden. I, I got player of the tour and did really well. We came back, and one of the things that got to my head quite a lot was I remember walking past the mega store one day. Something so stupid, and my name was on shirts in the front um, window of the mega store, and I thought, how's this happened so quickly? Um, and that gave me a sort of like a little uh, pat on the back, I suppose. And I thought to myself, do you know what? Like, I'm doing well. Uh, we played against Chelsea and I scored a free kick against Petr Cech in pre-season the week before the season started. Um, made my debut against Nottingham Forest, played like Newcastle away. And I was this kid living a dream. Um, I remember going out in the evening after the uh, Chelsea game and we were in a bar in London and two guys come up to me and tapped me on the shoulder. 
and they said, was that you that scored the goal? And I turned around and Sky Sports News was showing um, the preseason friendly highlights. And I was just like, yeah, yeah, it was. And I couldn't quite believe it because my life off the pitch was a mess. Uh, but I was getting away with it purely because of my ability on it. Um, yeah. But obviously, you can only do that for so long um, until your life becomes completely imbalanced. Um, and to try and live the life of a gambler, be a gambling addict alongside football, uh, they just don't go hand in hand. They don't marry up. So one day um, after the fourth or fifth game of the season, I got pulled into the office and Brendan said to me, he said, listen, he said, I've, I've seen a change. Um, I see the players out there, players like Gilfie Sigurdsson, Shane Long, Hal Robson-Karnu that have gone on to play in European Championships and World Cups. They're here every minute of the day. Uh, you're the last one in and you're the first one out. And I used to have a date every single day, not with a nice little blonde or anything like that. I had a date with the bookmakers. Um all I could think about in the morning, all uh, all the whole time throughout training, as soon as training had finished, I thought to myself, do you know what? I cannot wait to get back there. It's all I could think about. And my mind was completely taken over. So I would rush to get out. And he said to me, listen, I need you to be more professional. So I sort of sat there and I nodded my head and I was like, yeah, I can be. But I knew I couldn't be. Uh, the following day, exactly the same happened. He caught me rushing out of training um, and he brought me back in the following morning and said, listen, I gave you an opportunity and I stopped him in his tracks. I told him I had the dentist and that's why I had to shoot. And he said, basically, listen, you're lying to me. Um, I had to prove that I had the dentist and I couldn't. Um, and off the back of that, I never played another match. I'm not saying that that was the sole reason, um, but it definitely didn't help. Um, I don't even know if he'd remember that chap because for him, he's obviously worked with hundreds, thousands of players in his time. Um, but I remember it clear as day. Uh, and for me, it's something that I think about quite a lot, just thinking, do you know what? Maybe I could have shown a sign of weakness I opened up to him and said listen I'm struggling can you help me out but it just wasn't the the thing to do at the time so I thought do you know what I'll keep it to myself and just crack on and, and from a, a playing point of view what were what was training with Brendan Rodgers and some of those players you, you mentioned like was is he as good a tactician as he appears to be oh mate he's absolutely incredible um yeah really really good the sessions were class loved him as a person um I, I I felt like at the time I kind of let him down, but I look back now and I let myself down. Um, I met up for lunch with one of my old teammates, Simon Church, about six months ago. And the first thing he said was, what the fuck happened to you? And I was just like, mate, I don't really know. Um, it was a nice thing for him to say because he was obviously saying, like, listen, you started off the season absolutely flying. Um, and I was like, yeah, I know I did. And I just said to him, listen, gambling took over my life. Um, it was exactly that. Um, and he was just like, was it that bad? And I said, yeah, it was. I said, it was all I did every minute of every day that I could until I ran out of money. And I'd, I'd kind of exhausted every avenue of finance. Um, and then in the end, it just became uh, a daily routine without even thinking about what I was going to do. And when that period comes up with Red and Release, I think you joined, was it would have been Steve Evans probably at the time? Yeah, what a guy. What a guy. <laughs> Steve yeah, you've had some characters as managers, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was he was very, very turbulent in his approach, his behaviour. Um, but I actually, I look back now and I probably appreciate him more now than I should have. Um, he gets the best out of players. He, he instills fear into them. Um, he makes you work hard. And off the back of that, he actually reaps success. Um, so you can't blame him, I suppose. I know he's like a villain pantomime uh, to a lot of people. Um, but he's not the world's best tactician or anything like that but he makes you work hard and he gets you um, as a cohesive unit um, and he gets you going um he gave me one hell of a contract at crawley um he gave me sort of like thirty thousand pound the day i signed in league two which is unheard of to be honest yeah. at that level um i remember putting it away in a bank account i went to pre-season um in portugal uh with with the rest of the squad 
And on the second day, he was screaming and shouting in my face uh, when I was sat on the floor after the match. And there was spit going in my eye. Do you remember Hope Akpan? He's a yeah. scouser. Yeah, so yeah, there was, yeah, there was spit going in Hopak Pan's eyes, and he came back over to me <laughs> screaming again. And I was like, Jesus Christ, like, what is going on here? So I got up and I went, Fuck this, and walked off. And he was going, like, Where are you going? Where are you going? And I was just like, I'm going, simple as that. And he said, You better not walk away. And I carried on walking. And the team that played the first half of the match was stood down the end of the pitch, and they said, Scott, you've got to go back. And I was like, No chance. I said, There's no way I'm going back. So I went down for dinner that evening and he said, what are you doing? He said, you're not eating with us. You're not training with us. You're not socialising with us. He said, go back to your room. He said, tell your agent you're getting a flight home. He said, I don't want to see you again. So I was just like, Phew. so I didn't expect that. <laughs> so for the next six days, I started gambling um, on Danny Borman's laptop. He's still a crawly now. He's about 48. Um, yeah. But he, uh, I started gambling on his laptop and started to gamble some of the money I obviously saved up from my signing on fee um, that was due to buy a house. And then got back to England. Um started looking around houses with my parents and I had to come clean to them that from the first bet that I had in Portugal um, to 15 days later, I gambled away about 31 and a half thousand pound. So yeah, that was a, that was a turning point for me um, off the back of an argument with Steve. I wasn't allowed to train. I was isolated in my room um, and boredom, boredom kicked in, isolation kicked in. Um, so yeah, that's what I turned to. So that's, that's one of the stories obviously under the time that I was playing with, uh, with Crawley. And you did go on to make a few appearances for them, didn't you? So did you sort of get back in this good books later on down the line? We played um, we played Southend on a Monday night on Sky Sports and he pulled me in on Sunday morning when we were training and, and he sat me down and I thought, what is going to happen here? And he said, uh, are you ready? And I said, what do you mean? Like, am I ready? And he said, we're going to start you tomorrow night. So I was just like, right, OK. And I hadn't played in a, in a good a good while. Um and then I sat there and I thought, yeah, of course I'm ready. Um, and I had a good run in the team after that. I think we were unbeaten in about 14 games and ended up getting promoted. Um, so I did do quite well towards the back end of the season. Um, obviously went up to League One. We got promoted uh, away at Accrington. Then the new manager came in, um, got a phone call from my agent a couple of days after. And he said, uh, I've just been on the phone to Crawley. And I said, all right, OK. And I was thinking I was going to get a new contract. And he said, yeah, they've told me you're never going to play for the club again. And I thought, this is strange. Like, we've just been promoted. I've just played all the games at the back end of the season. We're halfway through pre-season. Um, and I was like, why have they said that? What's happened here? Because I thought, who gets promoted with a club, um, plays all the games at the back end of the season and gets told they're never going to play again? Yeah. Um, but I just kind of accepted it. Um, I had a manager at the time, uh, Richie Barker, who came in. And I'll be honest with you, I've seen him a few times since, but I was complete arsehole towards him because I had no motivation to play. Um, because I got told I wasn't going to play. So training was tough. I used to train with the youth team quite a lot. Um, and I found that really, really difficult because I'd signed there as, I think I was the top earner and stuff like that on a good contract to then play with the youth team on a Friday morning when the lads are travelling up to away games at Fleetwood and places like that, wherever it might have been. I found it difficult to take. Um, so that hit me for six quite quite well, quite badly. Um, and then at Christmas time, halfway through my second year of my contract, I got told that... Um, I was going to basically uh, get paid up the rest of my contract and I was free to leave. But during my time at Crawley, I, I used to sleep in my car at the stadium some nights um, when I was training with the youth team because I couldn't afford to get home because I'd over-gambled. Um, so I didn't have the fuel, I didn't have anywhere to stay. So I used to sleep in my car at the stadium um, around the back of the 3G pitch. And it's just ludicrous to think that I used to do that. But that's what my life was like. It was quite turbulent. And were you give were any of your teammates starting to become aware of the problems you had, and was there any support there for you at that time? 
or was it just um, you against the world at, at that moment? Do you know what? I was com- I was completely in love with gambling at the time. That's the only way I can describe it. So I, I started to bet on my own matches at halftime, um, whether it was to uh, us to win, us to lose. I remember Cheltenham away one day where I'd bet on us to lose the match. I looked at the back four and I thought, do you know what? I've had bailiffs at my door this week. I need to pay a £1,500 parking fine that's increased. Um, and I thought the only way that I can pay this debt is by betting on things that I could affect. Um, I got pulled off at half time, 3-0 down. Um, I ended up winning £2,000 from the game. And I look back now and think, like, what was I doing? Um, but your rules, regulations, morals, principles go out the window when you've got an issue with gambling um, and you've got debts mm-hmm. to pay. Um, I was so worried about the bailiffs turning up at my door again. Um, my mum answered, answered the door and she started crying. She thought it was the police uh, knocking on the door uh, seven o'clock on a Sunday morning, basically saying that I'd snuck out of the house. She worried that I'd gone and done something stupid because she knew that I was suffering with my mental health. So she kind of ran up to my room and burst open uh, the door and basically just said, like, thank God you're still in here. And I said, well, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? She said, oh, we've got bailiffs at the door. I've, I thought you'd gone out during the night and done something stupid. Um, and I was like, no, mum, don't be stupid. But that just shows how worried she was. Yeah. And I suppose it like it seems like you had a very strong family as well. With, and often we see people get into these situations and you don't have anybody to fall back on. So was your relationship with your family at this point just critical to you getting back on the right track? Yeah, listen, a lot of people think that gambling problems, issues come from broken homes, dysfunctional families, unintelligent people, selfish people. Um, my parents are both intelligent people. They're great people. Um, listen, I couldn't ask for better parents. Um, and without them, I don't know where I'd be today, to be brutally honest. Um, they pretty much paid for me to get to training for about seven or eight years because I couldn't afford to put fuel in my tank. But um, yeah, with my mum's help, she was always willing to help me. Um, and it was great. And then my dad basically came on board in the end and wanted to help me out because at first he couldn't quite fathom how I was spending so much money. Um, he's so good with his finances. So for him, it was unbelievably um, unbelievable to think that I could put £500, £1,000 on a horse. Yeah. Um, so I, I understand that looking back now um, that I was different to the rest um, but yeah the, the support and the love they've shown me um, throughout all of it and then since I've stopped gambling um, listen I'll forever be in debt for that and then the last sort of uh, professional team I think you were at was Oxford and again Chris Wilder another brilliant manager what what was that I think he was going to be there for a year but what was that like? Yeah so I, I signed there in um, the February uh, for the last sort of 10, 12 games of the season. And then I did a whole season the following year. Um, but he, yeah, he was class, like just a really, really good guy. Um, someone that you could have a pint with. Uh, not that I ever did, I don't think, but you could, you could easily sort of sit there and have a chat with him, just laid back down to earth. Um, listen, wasn't the best tactician in the world yet again. Uh, wasn't the most articulate of people with words. Uh, loved the F word. Uh, if you've done a team talk, <laughs> 85 Fs in 35 seconds. So, um, But what he did is create an atmosphere that was enjoyable to go to work in. Um, to say that he'd be a top five premiership manager now, a uh, league manager, you'd have been laughing, I suppose. And I think he would have been laughing himself, not being horrible. But um, yeah, he's done what a job he's done. Uh, Managed a year in my eyes by an absolute mile um, for what he's done yeah, with that team. But... Yeah, absolute dream. And I, I must admit, I, I remember you as a player, as I said, supporting Tramie. I've seen you play a few times. And we were quite surprised when we were doing the research because we couldn't really remember where you went after Oxford. And it was, was it Dunstable Town? How yeah, did that, that... There must have been clubs in between the level you went to that would have took you. 
Well, I had, an, I had a conversation with Cheltenham and Northampton when I left at the end of the season. And both of the managers there had said to my agent, listen, we've heard he's got an issue with gambling. Um, is it true? My agent rang me and said, like, how bad is it? And I said, no, it's fine. I said, I like a bet, but no more than anyone else. But I'd got the name in the game um, that was a gambling addict and no one would touch me with the proverbial barge pole. So I remember sitting in Nando's one day, players had gone back to pre-season at professional clubs. It was about two or three weeks into pre-season and my phone went and I didn't recognise the number. So I picked it up um, and the guy said to me, hello, it's uh, Tony Fontenelle from Dunstable Town Football Club. And I thought, what the fuck are you doing ringing me? <laughs> and, um, yeah, it, it, that, that's God's truth. So I thought, what are you doing ringing me? You must have the wrong number. And he said, listen, I've heard you've not got a club. We'd like to have a look at you. So I thought, like, I'll come down tonight and I'll have a look at you. So I went down there that evening and I played against Hemel Hempstead Town, um, played well. And he said, listen, we want to sign you. And I thought, thank God for that. So um, it was unbelievable um, to actually kind of accept how far I dropped. My first ever match for them was in front of 87 people. Um, and I think six or seven of them were like my mates and my dad. So <laughs> it just it just shows how, how basically the fall from grace um, was quite yeah. a far one. Um, I remember going on the team bus for the first time, my first ever away trip, uh, a place called Biddeford Town. And when I came back, I could not quite believe the coach on the way home. People were like getting absolutely hammered. People were up to all sorts on the coach. And I thought, oh my God, what have I joined? Um, but do you know what? It kind of got me my love for football again um, yeah. because it was so laid back. It was, it didn't mean as much, but um, to me it did because I loved playing football I didn't care wherever I was playing uh, against my best mate in the garden wherever it was uh, if my sister was in goal I'm pinging balls at her um, <laughs> anything any any sort of football I wanted to play um, I wanted to win um, but I quickly sort of enjoyed playing because there was no pressure um, and the thing that I enjoyed most was that I found the level quite easy. Um, I sound like an arrogant uh, person there, but I did find it quite easy at the time. And um, I'd gone from being someone who was just part of a team uh, for the previous couple of years to being sort of like Roy the Rovers um, for, yeah. for, an hour, for an hour or two. Um, and that was quite a nice feeling because when you're feeling down in the dumps about how you're feeling, what's going on off the pitch, it was kind of a pick me up every Saturday um like playing in a team where you actually felt valued um so that was nice but um yeah they stopped paying me after about three months I was about six weeks down in wages and I thought to myself like right this is non-league football like this is how this is how it works this is how it happens so I needed to move on so I ended up going to uh Wildstone after that and that top of that was that conference south at the time yeah so it was back up a level um yeah. the, the month getting paid in the league below was was crazy really um yeah but i used to climb out of the stadium at, um on a saturday my dad would wait for me at the the uh the gate and i'd give him my wages in an envelope and he'd go and pay it into my account because i'd moved into my house by this point um and when i gave him the envelope it used to be really tedious he'd open it up give me 20 quid and go yeah mate go and treat yourself to a takeaway and i'm thinking oh yeah fucking great cheers like, <laughs> um so I used to climb over the fence into people's gardens and jump into my car and drive off so he couldn't catch me. Um, and I'd go down William Hill straight away, lose my money. Um, he'd ring me up and say, where are you? I'm still waiting at the gate. This is about an hour and a half after after the game's finished. Um, I'm sat at a roulette machine. But it just shows a level of desperation to try and place those bets and, and basically spend the money that I was earning. 
So, so you then do the do the round sort of in, in non-league football. You've Ox, Oxford City, Chelmsford, Slough, Kingstonian. At what 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 point does the recovery start to happen? And, and where was you at the time? Was you still yeah. in football? So at the end of um, that season with Dunstable, I went to, uh, to Wildstone. I finished off the season, um, and I was doing quite well there. To be fair, like the the fans and that, I think I was a bit of a bit marmite. Would watch me play. Um, some probably didn't because I tried the hard thing every time. I'll shoot from the halfway line and things like that. So um, at the end of that season, I was in the bookmakers. Uh, my mum came in uh, into the shop and I saw her at the door and I thought, Jesus Christ, I need to get out of here. So I ran to the door. I said to her, is everything OK? And she said, you need to stop gambling. You're going to end up dead. We're going to break up mine and your dad's marriage. That night I went home and I didn't speak to anyone for a, for a long period of time. Um, thought of sort of suicide and self-harm wasn't right, but I held a knife to my chest and I started scratching myself underneath my peck. And as soon as I did it, I thought, what am I doing? What have I become? Um, like, who am I? I didn't realise, didn't kind of recognise myself anymore. Mm. Um, and I went round to my mum's. Um, I said to her, listen, I think I finally hit my rock bottom. She said to me, thank fuck you finally admitted it. And that was when I knew I needed help. We sort of just stood in the living room crying. Um, she put me in touch with a rehab clinic called Sporting Chance, uh, which was set up by Tony Adams. Yeah. Following day, I went. Back, following day, I went down there for an assessment. Um, sat there opposite this um, guy, like he was ticking all these boxes with a pen, and he just looked at me with a little wry smile, and he was just like, "Yeah, you're a mess." He said, "You need 26 days worth of uh, help where I needed to pack, pack my bags and move in." Um, so, 6th of July, I was driving around the M25 down the A3 to rehab. I think rehab was for only people like um, Amy Winehouse and Pete Doherty, not for me. I was thinking, like, how has this happened? Um, but the way that it happened is that something that started out as a little bit of fun um, turned into a problem. Um, and in the late days, it turned into an addiction, which I didn't know you could get from gambling when I first started. So when I got there, I sort of sat opposite the counsellor and he said, right, tell me what's been going on. And I thought, mate, no way. And I thought, no way am I telling you what I've done, what I've been up to, what, what I've done behind my parents' back. Because um, I was scared of getting judged. Over the next sort of two or three days, um, I started to open up. Um, I started to tell him the truth. And you know what? I kind of enjoyed it. I thought, you know what? This is actually getting me somewhere. I feel better already um, because it wasn't just me that was struggling. He was a um, recovering gambling addict himself and he understood me. It was almost like we were speaking Spanish to each other and I couldn't even say hello in Spanish. So it was, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was it was just brilliant. Um, it, it just took all the pressure away from me. Um, and then we all did all sorts of things in rehab, like trust building. I was walking around on a Saturday morning blindfolded, leading a horse uh, around this field. I don't know what I was doing, but it was all part of rebuilding trust exercises uh, meditation tai chi scuba diving um all sorts of different things um for me it's worked for the other uh three people that i lived with for the 26 days sadly they're all back doing what they were doing um but i sort of got on the horse and rode it and i listened to everything that they said i did everything that they wanted me to do um and i've come out the other side of it when you were 17 you you when you got one of your contracts it was worth about 1800 pound a week is that right yeah 1800 in year one and then 2000 in year two um at that time, were you given any sort of support or advice on how to manage your finances, either by the club or from like the PFA or any anything else in the game? I can't remember, but someone must have told me to invest in William Hill, but it obviously hasn't gone well. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, no, at the time there was no help. Um, now there's a lot more help. I actually did a, a talk the other week at a Premier League club um, for the under uh, 23s. And after me, there was a guy from Coots, um, which is a, a private bank or whatever. Um, they're obviously having a meeting after with all the players to discuss finance. Back then, there was nothing. It was almost like, listen, there's the money. Go and do what you want with it. 
And I'm not saying that I was a millionaire by any stretch of the imagination because a couple of grand a week at 18, 19, yeah, it's great, but you've not earned enough there to be able to retire when you finish playing. Um, but it gave me a nice lifestyle if I wanted to spend the money wisely. Um, but nowadays, people do need help with it. I go to a lot of these clubs, players earning absolute fortunes, um, and it makes them live a lifestyle that's not healthy. Um, it's not popular from a lot of people from the outside looking in. Um, and that's why probably footballers get a lot of bad press. And off the back of that is uh, issues with, um, I don't know, maybe uh, social media where people obviously are quick to judge. Um, and that's that's not good for a footballer's mindset either. Do you think, kind of looking back on it now and, and obviously sort of referring to the, the clubs that you work with, do you think it's irresponsible of an organisation to give that much money to to someone so young? It's difficult. It's so difficult to answer because if someone said to all of us, like, yeah, we're going to pay you 10 grand a week, you'd, you'd chop their hand off, you'd, you'd bite their hand off for it. Um, but I do believe that agents have got a part to play. A lot of the agents now are a lot closer to a lot of these players. Um, they do a lot more for them. If a player went to buy a house these days, chances are he'd move into a house before he's even seen it. Um, that's what it's like. The agent's done everything for him or the club have sorted out the house for him. Um, if you spoke to uh, say 100% of the under 23 squad in England, would they know how a mortgage works? Probably not. They probably wouldn't even know how many direct debits they have because everything's done for them. Um, but finances and how much they're spending is one of the things that probably isn't. Um, they can go out to a nightclub. I've been out on nights out where people have earned tens of thousands of pounds a week and it's like monopoly money. It's just crazy the amount of money that's being spent. Um, there needs to be more help out there for the longevity, I suppose, of their future for when they do finish playing. They don't suffer with um, issues around finance and turn to substances which we like, which we know all players have or a lot of players have, um, which can be detrimental to their to their health. And I think um, I think gambling addictions is amongst you know a lot of the sort of addictions that people are aware of. You, you know, alcohol and drugs being the obvious too. I think gambling is probably the one that I think a lot of people find quite difficult to to understand. What what what's it like? How, how, how what's that feel like? You know, when you're in that state. So, the way I can describe it is from a footballer's point of view is the best moment I've probably had in my career was scoring a free against Petr Cech or making my debut for Reading. Um, scoring a winner for Aldershot away at Torquay was good as well. So I've had a few. Um, and for me, that rush, that buzz gave me, it gave me that. It gave me exactly that feeling gambling did. Um, and it got, it got hold of me very, very quickly. So as soon as I knew that I could get that from gambling, I thought, Do you know what, this is great. And when you're left out of the team on a Saturday and you haven't got a, um, an exam to go to, I call it, um, like obviously a match, then where do you get that buzz from? Um, a lot of people turn to other substances. A lot of people turn to playing computer games, which are highly addictive now. A lot of people turn to porn, sex, um, whatever it might be. But gambling for me was my one true love. Um, and I thought to myself, do you know what? I'm completely hooked. Um, but whilst I was in it, I enjoyed it. Um, whilst when I got home from gambling throughout the day, I hated it because that's when reality hit, when I got into bed and I had too much time to think, an idle mind. Um, and me with an idle mind uh, isn't a good person to be around because I think way too much. Um, I suffered with health anxiety for a long, long time, um, thinking something bad was always going to happen to me, um, probably because of the feeling of being um, feeling worthless and having sort of like no self, um, self sort of esteem or praise. Um, so, yeah, it was tough. Do you think there was an, a, a sense of pride of yourself that you didn't want to 
put your hand up, but especially linked with finance as well and, and saving yeah. and struggle. Yeah, well, you judge you judge people or a footballer. You you either judge them by the way they look, or you judge them when you see them on social media. All right. So if I was to look at me back then, you'd look at me and think, right, he drives a nice car, he wears a nice watch, he's got a nice wash bag, he looks like he's got a few quid. When he goes on nights out, he he buys a lot of drinks at the bar, he'll treat his mates. But in reality, the car was on finance. I was paying that monthly. Um, the watch was paid for already when I had a winning um, winning day in the bookmakers. The wash bag's a few hundred quid and I was going out with my mum's bank card. So, but I was out in the middle of the night um, partying away, buying drinks for my mates on my mum's bank card. So that just shows the kind of person that I was. I was reckless. I was careless. Um, but perception is key, isn't it? It's one of those things that you don't want to, um, you don't want to let your guard down and show that you haven't got a few quid in your bank account because people think that you're this uh, successful footballer. Um, and for them, well, for them, for you to tell them otherwise, um, it's not going to bode well with, like you say, you and your masculinity. So, yeah, I think it's hugely important to people that they try and keep that up. But to keep that up only means that you're not going to get the help that you need um, sooner. Um, and for me, that's obviously one of the issues that I faced. Do you look back with with regret on it or do you kind of think, you know, those that, that, that happened to make me who I am today? The only benefit I've got is that I've had some great memories from it and now I've got an unbelievable job. Um, absolutely adore my job this isolation lockdown at the moment it's killing me because I actually enjoy going to work um, when I came out of the game uh, I didn't have a job for probably well probably two or three years um, then I was uh, building beds on £10 an hour um, it was getting me out it was keeping me fit and it was just a job just to basically pay some of the bills it didn't even cover all of them um, but now the job that I do is um, it's fulfilling, um, it's, it's satisfying, helping people out. And it still keeps me in the loop. I still get to see my old teammates, old managers. Um, I still know a lot of the boys from playing against them. Um, and do you know what it is as well? Every day is different. So for me, um, I'm a people's person. Um, I'd like to think that I get on with most people. Um, we'll do anything for anyone um, now. Back in the day, I wouldn't because my addiction probably led me to be selfish, um, which is one of the main characteristics of, of gambling. Um, and the addiction itself but um yeah no i have regrets when i see people playing on super sunday uh, playing in world cups european championships where i think do you know what you weren't that much better than me um there were people um like that would say listen you're probably better than him back in the day but i don't want to be that guy that sits down the pub and said oh that could have been me that could have been me uh, that should have been me like no because i'm grateful for the times i've had um, and i'm grateful for what i'm doing now so uh, yeah no it's all good um just touching on on your work now as a as a facilitator for is it epic risk management that's the one yeah uh, so just give us a, a brief overview of what it does day to day oh so um the company itself was actually set up from a prison cell um hmp kirkham up your way in preston okay. um so yeah the 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 CEO of the company um, was working for Abbey National before it was Santander. Um, he'd stolen £433,000 from his employers to fund the gambling addiction. Um, after uh, a number of uh, transactions, he'd lost, I think, £116,000 in one day from taking someone's money out of their account. He went upstairs to the office above, he put a tie around his neck and he tried to take his own life. Um, fortunately for him and his family, um, he, he managed to survive it. He woke up alone in the room um, and he thought, what have I tried to do here? He saw the tie around his neck, saw the table on the floor and he thought, Christ, went downstairs, jumped in a car, went to his mum's um, and basically told him that he just tried to kill himself, that he'd stolen nearly half a million pounds um, and that he was going to go to prison for it. And when he was in prison, because he had such a successful job at the bank, 
I think he was earning sort of six figures a year. He thought, no one's going to employ me now. I've got a criminal record. Um, I can't be the only person that's struggling with gambling. So he set up this company um, basically in the uh, for the reasons that he wanted to help people. And it's gone from strength to strength. So we've got six or seven of us that go around and tell our story in uh, professional football, cricket and rugby. Um, we go to 200 state schools a year, 100 private schools a year. Um, and we've just broken into America. So we're going to do all the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, um, MLS. Um, so we've got 165 days a year work in America um, over the next two years as well. Um, plus all the universities out there. So we've just linked up with Harvard, I think. So, um, yeah, it's just absolutely crazy the amount of work that we've got through. Um, but full credit to the CEO. His name's Paul Buck. Um, he set it up from absolutely nothing. And what we are now is the, the world's leading um, gambling min harm minimization company. Um, bit, of a, bit of a tricky one to understand. Um, people probably think, is there actually a, a, a job for that out there? Uh, but there is, um, because it's such a, it's something that doesn't get taught um, in schools. You talk about sex and drugs and um, education, um, but you don't talk about gambling. It's something that's more prevalent now, along with online gaming and social media that kids need to know about. So how did you how did you get into it yourself? So when I came out of rehab, um, Sporting Chance, the rehab clinic said, listen, we do believe that you could go and tell your story for us. Um, so I, the first one I ever did was at Norwich City. Um, do you remember a player, M. Bacani? But I remember doing the talk and it was my first ever one. And I was stood there and I was shaking, thinking, oh, my God, what am I doing? Like, So I had to tell him my story for about 25 minutes. And I looked down in the front row after about five minutes and he was asleep. And I thought, oh, Christ, like he's absolutely hating this. Like everyone else must be hating it. So I thought I'm never doing this ever again. Um, and then after Russell Martin came up to me and I kind of half knew Russell anyway. He said, like, this mate, that was amazing. Like, I really enjoyed that, blah, blah. And I thought he's just saying it. So over the next sort of six months to a year, I started doing more of them, um, but under 18s clubs around the country. So I went to like Liverpool, Southampton, Arsenal, all of those. Um, and I was talking at a, um, a conference in London one day um, for Sporting Chance. And Paul Buck, the CEO of Epic, was in the audience and he was watching. Um, and obviously done a half good job because he came up to me after and said, listen, I want to employ you to go around all the football clubs for a new contract that we've got. Um, he gave me a few extra quid and looked after me. And uh, yeah, I, I jumped ship and uh, it's been working there now for uh, about two years. So it's been uh, it's been really good. That sounds really good. That sounds really interesting as well. Um, just let's try and get into your professional opinion. Um, do you have uh, any understanding of why or sorry, do, what do you believe? Um, why people are susceptible to gambling? Yeah, the one problem that I always not hate if people come to the, come to me with a problem with gambling, if they, if they say the reason is to escape from how they're feeling, then I worry. Um, a lot of people say, Do you know what, I, I gamble when I'm down, I'm lonely, I'm bored, I'm upset, I'm angry. And I think that's when it becomes dangerous because you're irrational at the time. Um, you're obviously not in control of your emotions. So to be in control of your finances and your gambling, you're not going to be in control of that either. A lot of people do it for a thrill seek. Um, a lot of people do it to obviously try and win money, um, to try and make ends meet. I know that a lot of footballers do it because people think that you can live an extravagant lifestyle in League 2. League two. You can't. All right, I'm telling you that now. I don't know any League 2 player that's living way beyond their means uh, from the money they're earning. And the issue that you do have with that is a lot of these footballers' girlfriends and wives uh, probably won't be working. So you've got a League Two player that might have a wife and two kids and they're living off one wage. So to try and live that lifestyle that you want to live, um, uh, people think that gambling will give them that. 
I remember Les Ferdinand used to fly his helicopter training at Reading and he'd fly into the far corner of the pitch. He'd land it and he'd fly it himself and he'd walk over to the training, uh, changing rooms. And I'd think to myself, like, oh, my God, like, what kind of life do you live? And I thought gambling would give me that, but I was obviously sorely mistaken. Um, it didn't give me that at all, but I thought it would. And just for anyone listening right now, if they're having a gambling issue themselves, how would you advise they go about that? I think the best thing you can do is open up to someone close to you um, to obviously tell them that you have an issue with it, tell them the destruction that you might have caused. Be completely honest from day one. Um, I know it's not difficult. Um, I know it's difficult, sorry. It's not easy um, to be truthfully honest um, and tell them what you might have done, which you're not proud of, but it gives you a clean slate to then start moving forward again. I know that speaking out is the best thing you'll ever do. Um, if you're hearing this podcast and you listen to it and you can find me on Twitter, which I'm sure you will be able to easily um, when it's uploaded, feel free to drop me a message. Um, I'll always try and help as much as I can. Uh, we've got a good network of people also at work that would be willing to help. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just important that you don't try and beat it alone because it's very, very hard to do that. I tried it and failed uh, miserably. Um, so, yeah, speaking out about it is the biggest thing that you can do. Welcome back. hope you enjoyed Scott's interview there. Some some really interesting topics that he's covered there. One of the big ones that we that he's covered on there. And one of the things that we really wanted to discuss is kind of the prevalence of big financial issues within football. Um, and he obviously was given a lot of money at a young age. It can be very difficult to manage your finances at any age, but particularly when you're young and particularly when given such large sums when you're in such a pressured environment. Yeah, I think I'd focus on that um, that point you just said there. You know, at any age, given, you know, it is a struggle for finances to to be controlled at, at literally any age. You know, I sit here at 27 and, and have that constant fear at the end of the month of, oh, am I going to get there? Have I got enough of this? Have I got enough of that? But I think when you, you give those sums of money to, to young footballers and he talks about it, doesn't he? You know, they're expected to lead a life of luxury. Um, I think it's extremely tough, extremely difficult without any help. Um, and... It brings about a, a kind of a strange pressure. You know, there's a pressure to fit in. He mentions, you know, going on those uh, coaches uh, to away games and having to play poker and and kind of losing all this money just trying to fit in with a new team. So it, it, it sounded very, very difficult. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point you make there, Ant. And one of the big things we, we've kind of looked at there is Scott's come through at, a, at maybe an era in time when the education and stuff wasn't quite as prevalent in the game. How important, right, do you think the educational element of it is to young footballers? I think it's very important, mate. Um, Scott obviously said that he had a, a good education. He was at a, a good school. He didn't actually go into training on the Fridays like some of the other players did because his school wouldn't actually let him leave. But I think there's got to be a bit of an emphasis on the club. Um, he touched on the lack of, um, sorry, the, the lot of time they would have. So they'd finish training at half 12, one o'clock. And then what to do with the remaining hours of your day. Um, and I think we saw that with Rodri Jones as well. When we spoke to him, he said the same. You just find yourself either back in your flat doing nothing, twitching at the curtains, or you just go into a bookmaker's and try and try and fill up the time. What I liked about Scott there was he did take responsibility head on. He did realise that his addiction and and I don't think he ever really blamed anyone for it. But it does just show you that it doesn't matter what sort of economical background you're from or what education you've had, you can still uh, succumb to an addiction. 
Yeah, I think you're right, Ryan. And I think one of the biggest things we discussed during the podcast is how mental health issues and, and addiction and things like that can can affect anybody. You know, they aren't prejudiced. Katie, one of the things that, that we touched on there briefly and, and Scott was really a pain to, to stress was how important the relationship he had, with, particularly with his mum, maybe more so than his dad, but his dad kind of later on, but having that strong family network, you obviously run men too. For the people that you've spoken to, how important is it to have that those people around you and know that they're there for you when you need them? Do you know what? It's really important. And I know that not everybody has family members or social support where they can reach out or they feel that they can reach out and it can be well received. Um, but my position being the female who's running the Men's Who campaign, um, especially with females, is that if you can encourage that ability in males to speak out, now that's the most difficult part of it. Um, I know when Scott said when he was younger, he just didn't feel able to talk about what he was going through. And when he finally got to the point where he had no other choice and he did reach out, you know, and it was to his mom, luckily for him, he had a, a, you know, a mother who was supportive and who cared for him. Um, he was able then to feel like he had the support and he had the platform to enable some kind of a recovery plan. Um, but for people who don't have family around them or don't have social support, I'm a firm believer that there are so many different institutions out there or learning coaches or people online, even strangers who you can turn to. And if you were just to reach out and ask for help, you know, human nature for a lot of people, people want to help, people want to signpost, people want to know that you're okay. And people, you know, they want to care for you, even if they don't actually know you as a person. How do we get men to feel more comfortable talking? How, you know, how do you, you know, Scott's there saying he's not feeling comfortable to do it. What is the type of thing that you would say to someone to tell them, to, to make them aware that they can talk and they will be listened to? Do you know what? It's really, really difficult because as a female, I feel comfortable to speak, as do most of the females that I've ever met in my lifetime, because I feel like we it's socially acceptable that women talk. You know, when we go back to the roles we used to have years ago when men were in the war and women largely were the, the homemakers and the carers, that was our role. Our expectancy was to care for our partners and our children and our home. And when we had a lot of downtime, we would speak to other people because that was really all we had to fill our time with. And over time, the social roles have changed whereby men's roles now women have taken over and men have lost a little bit of their identity and what's expected of them and I just think it's going to take a lot of time for men to kind of catch up and change their perspective and change their attitude on being accepted if they speak out because they're still very much stigmatized you know in the language that we use we still use language like man up and grow some balls and this expectancy that we put on males to be this man, to be this provider. But now all of the other roles that are also dumped on top of them, which is to attain these lifestyles, you know, these Instagram, social media lifestyles that just don't exist. When you've got a population of guys who are, who are on this transition of feeling almost at the point where they can maybe tell people that they're not feeling great but 
the language that is currently still in our culture kind of I feel stifles men from fully reaching out and it takes a it takes an extreme lot of courage to get to the point of actually reaching out to someone and saying, I need help, I need care. But I find it's very difficult for men because they're not as well received because of the stigma and the judgment against the typical male role. So we've got, I've got two fellas in with me. I've got Ant, I've got Ryan. Hi, boys. Lads. <laughs> men. Just, just there. <laughs> Just kind of building on what Katie said there. Does that type of thing resonate with you? Do you feel, as a blow, that sometimes it's harder to to feel as though you're able to stick your head above the parapet and, and say I'm struggling with something? Um, I think when Katie mentions the, the kind of like society sort of role of a male, you know, you go out, you earn the money, you come home and you provide for your family. Um, speaking as a as a person with a son and a girlfriend and recently just moved into a house it's a big pressure and it's a big expectancy um it's almost as if um it's maybe decided by other people or you look to other people i don't know why to do it in a certain time frame and if you haven't hit that time frame you kind of feel a bit like not it kind of feel like you're not going in the right way you're not going in the right direction so Speaking out about that, that's quite tough. You know, it's kind of just, you don't feel like it's an important thing. Ryan, you're obviously, you've got a, a, an older sister, you've, you're quite close to your mum and, and, and you've got a girlfriend, so you've got quite a lot of female influence around you. Do you think there's a reason why men feel more comfortable opening up to women than to other men? In my instance, I think if I don't speak up, it's normally subconscious rather than consciously. I just say you've had a tough day at work, you come home, and rather than want to talk about it, there isn't actually always a want to talk about it, if that makes sense. It's not so much that I'm scared to talk about it. You just sort of brunt the weight on your own shoulders and crack on and then hope you'll wake up in a better mood the next day. Um, and that's how I find I deal with it, where I probably do our times when I should just like say, oh, I've got this on my mind and, and speak up a bit. And I think everybody around me would be willing to help me and, and get me through it. But I just tend to just, deal with it myself and probably go a bit insular and I think a lot of men probably do that as well it's not so much that they don't think they can talk or they don't have a support network they for some reason choose not to because I know my girlfriend she speaks about everything she has a bad shift at the hospital she's straight home and she'll talk you through every minute of a shift and then by the end of it you can tell she's relaxed a little bit more she's got it off her chest I think it's very healthy to do so but me personally I just tend to just crack on <laughs> which probably isn't healthy thanks yeah. for for your time today guys it's been uh it's been a pleasure as per usual no problem no problem mate thanks for having me and before we move on to scott's quick fire is squeaky bum time i'd just like to put you in the direction of our next episode which is out on thursday of this week with the athletics carl anchor Ant and i went all the way down to southampton to speak to carl before the lockdown was in place which was a very enjoyable day. We didn't get back until about three o'clock in the morning. That was right, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I think we only just got back the other day, didn't we? Yeah, I mean, I've just walked through the front door now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that episode will be out on all the normal channels. And obviously, you can find us on Twitter. It's marking underscore man. Um, and finally, if you have listened to us and you've liked the podcast, give it a little rating on iTunes, on whatever your podcast provider is, and pass it to your friends and your family and anyone you think will listen to it. 
If you have been affected by anything we've spoken about tonight, I would like to signpost you over to Men2, which is a signposting website for all kinds of different mental health organizations. And you can also use the likes of Be Gamble Aware. Um, they've got a Twitter and a, and a website for anything that you need. So Scott's, Scott's quick fire is coming up. And then Thursday, we'll be speaking with Carl Anker. Find us again, as I say, on the Twitter, which is Mark underscore man, using the hashtag, where's the talking lads? Thank you for listening. Uh, do you lick the yogurt lid? Do you, is, that, is that a serious one? <laughs> it's, it's written down here. It's got to be. Like, to be fair, I can't remember the last time I had a yogurt. But if I, if, if I did, I would, yeah. Yeah, there we go. Would you do it in front of people, Scott? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Why not? Uh, so yeah. I wouldn't. I, I'm, a, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. No, he's, he's, a, he's, he's, a, he's a non-proud yoghurt lid. Licker. Yeah, just get on with it. <laughs> Favourite manager you've played under? Uh, oh, that's a tough one because the best the best I've probably played under would have been Brendan in terms of tactics and knowledge and, and whatnot. Um, for me, the one that I probably owe the most to is probably Gary Waddock. Um, he gave me a platform to succeed for the first sort of two years of my career um, and then another six months when I went on loan to Wickham twice. So, yeah, he's uh, he'd be the sort of first person um, that I'd invite to a party, I suppose. God, is, it, is Nando's overrated? Oh, I think it is, you know. I, I I think it is for what you pay for it. My my meal's always sixteen pound ten there. Um every <laughs> single specific. time. Uh, what do you, not, you go for? What do you double, go for? Double breasted chicken burger, lemon and herb, no lettuce, tomato or mayo, with garlic bread chips and a coke. Sixteen pound ten every time. Um because I'm basic. I, I I eat kids' food. Um <laughs> So when you get a McDonald's, are you one of them that says take everything off but like the cheeseburger? Right, listen. I'm the one. I'm the one sat in parking bay number one, waiting for my plain burgers to come out. No. So I, I, my, my dinner from um, McDonald's is two plain hamburgers, large chips, and large coke. So no sauce, no cheese, no nothing. Um, oh. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those boring guys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, last one for me is I think you did a bit of writing for the the non-league paper. Um, who's the next big thing to come out of non-league in your opinion? Um. But just thinking through, there's a 16-year-old playing in the Conference South, uh, right back at Chelmsford called, I think his name is Danny Imray. Um, and we played against him the other week and you think, do you know what, as good as he is, is talked about being, surely you can get the better of a 16-year-old right back who's about five foot six. He was unbelievable. Uh, he was so good. He was like Danny Alves. Um, so I don't know where he'll end up, but there's talk of him going to a big, big club um, this summer. Um, so he'll be one to look out for for sure. Scott, you made uh, you made a couple of appearances for the Irish on the twenty ones. Yeah. Um, could you tell us what part of Ireland Aylesbury is in? <laughs> yeah, it's just the the west coast in a place called Westport. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, my grand my granddad was from uh, Westport, so the west of Ireland. Uh, my nan was from Kilkenny, um, and do you know what? The colours of Aylesbury United are green. So oh, okay. my, my granddad said to my mum when I was uh, about 12 or 13, um, if he ends up playing uh, in a, if I see him playing a green shirt one day, I'll die a happy man. And I thought, fucking hell, like he wants me to play for Ireland. Like it's a bit of a bit extreme. And I was playing for like Wickham under 13s at the time. And my mum turned around and she went, no, 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 don't be stupid. He means Ellsbury. So I was just like, oh, right. So my mum clarified that and he did mean Ellsbury. Um, but when I got to 17, he saw me play for Ireland. We actually had a European Championships in England. We played against uh, England, Northern Ireland and Serbia. Um, and he saw me play um, against Northern Ireland that day at Solihull Moors. 
And I remember just seeing him sort of stood, I don't know, 50, 60 yards away when the national anthems were being sung and he was crying his eyes out, bless him. So that was probably oh. one of my that was probably one of my favourite times in my career um, because I kind of super exceeded his um, expectations or what he wanted um, from playing for Elsby United to playing for Republic of Ireland in front of him, which was great. Bill Badford's trying to take the piss now, Scott. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> this House Party app, even though I'm like 32 now, everyone seems to be jumping on it. So I've downloaded House Party the other day and we actually had a rap battle. Um, you got it. Any 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 portion of your rap you can you can give us now, Scott? Mate, I'm I, honestly I'm horrific. I tell you what you can do if you want to include something, in, I'll send you a link to something after where we went to um the Oxford City Centre Christmas light turn on, right? Yeah. So when we were stood on stage, there was a guy from like BBC Radio Oxford that I got on really well with because he used to do the football matches and interview people after the games. So he just basically said to me, right, you're not going to let the rare, let the, um, the people of Oxford down, are you? Get, um, we've been told that you're going to sing us a song. So I was like, fuck. I was like, what the fuck do I do here? Like, I can't let sort of like two and a half, three thousand people down. So I've just popped out with a little bit of Cher Lloyd turned my swag on. I don't know if you remember oh, it. Oh, <laughs> nice. But, but I'll, I'll send you the link on YouTube. Um, yeah, it's on there. So if, if you did want it, um, I think it's like OUFC Christmas Carol or something. And then I'm there sort of belting out the chorus thinking that I've got a bit. But yeah, it's not good. But I have to put a bit of my swag on. I took a look in the mirror said, what's up, what's up, what's up, yeah. I'm getting money, oh, they told me round my hood, what they say, every time I see you I look good, yeah, I'm getting money, oh. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I bet on a Sunday evening you didn't think you were going to hear Scott Davis sing that.